0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to talk about socialism. What is it? And what do the politicians who now say they want it really want? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. It's a pleasure to say we've got a full house panel today, Helen Thompson, Chris Bickerton, Chris Brooke. I think we have quite a lot of expertise around this table about certainly the history of socialism as an idea and we're going to start with that and then we're going to get on to what was the trigger for this conversation or one of them which is the interview john McDonnell gave a couple of weekends ago in which he was asked whether his hobby was still and there's a joke in there somewhere i missed it fermenting the overthrow of capitalism i think he said it was a joke about brewing anyway overthrowing capitalism he said absolutely it is and it's not just his hobby it's his job now and then when asked whether there was any difference between transforming capitalism and overthrowing it he said no there isn't but then there was a bit light on details in that then when giving an example of what this socialist society as he called it would be like he said and he got emotional that a man had died a homeless man within feet of the entrance of parliament and socialism would mean not that It's just kind of a big gap I think I mean it's a terrible thing but a big gap between that and what the rest of socialism might mean. So we're going to try and fill that in and talk a bit about what might be possible in Britain. But also socialism means lots of different things in different places. It means something different in Europe. One of the other things that sparked this conversation was the fact that some candidates in democratic primaries in the United States, so four in particular in Pennsylvania who won, are now self-describing as socialist, democratic socialists, in the kind of Bernie Sanders tradition. So what what is this thing? That's where we're going to start and maybe end up. Chris, Brook. Brooke socialism
1: history of it um the conventional story is that socialism emerges as a protest against the urbanization and the industrialization of the early 19th century with all the great urban poverty that are described for example in engels conditions of the working class in england but a good case can be made that they're older than that and that socialism emerges out of the religious crisis of the French Revolution. The French Revolution got rid of the Catholic Church. It wasn't quite sure what to do. We know in the end that Napoleon reintroduced the Catholic Church but in the 1790s and the 1800s there's a huge debate in France about what the future social order will look like and what kind of religion there will be. And the earliest socialist texts by people like Saint-Simon and my favourite Charles Fourier are thinking about how you can reorganise the fabric of everyday life in order to replace the work that religions have traditionally done. Charles Fourier, I think, is the most interesting of these writers. Fourier's core idea is that our lives are structured by the institutions of work and family, and that as things stand, these institutions that couldn't be designed better to make us miserable. So he systematically works on thinking about how productive activity and intimate relationships can be transformed and what a broader society would have to look like to have the kind of institutions that could make us happy. A couple of interesting things about Fourier. First of all, he's dead keen on the emancipation of women. That line in Michelle Obama's speech during the presidential election about how you can gauge the decency of a society by how it treats women and girls is a paraphrase of a line from Fourier. He's onto the idea that what makes people's lives go well is having a really good sex life. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why his writings continue to be curious, even after so many other earnest moralists Mm -hmm. of the period come across as as, as tedious. Mm -hmm. But also, interestingly, Fourier is a fierce anti-egalitarian. We normally associate the idea of socialism with a strong commitment to equality. Fourier is not like that. He associates equality with the French Revolution and the attempt to come up with a sort of one-size-fits-all model for everyone. And, his visions of a transformed society that we later called socialism are a world in which there's a place for everybody. Everyone's different, but the society is complex enough to accommodate all of that difference. So
0: one of the things that that raises, and I've always been a bit puzzled by this, so socialism is the ism of the social. So the, the, the key word in there is social. So what is the social being opposed to? In Macdonald's account, and in the question that Macdonald was asked, the implication is it's capitalism. And so it's, it's in opposition to an economic system, but also to Individualism or kind of an atomistic view of society, private property, something that breaks society down, that's one possibility. So it's the social versus the sort of fragmented individualistic version of society. It's opposed to religion, other organizing ideas that shape how we coexist. And then it's also potentially opposed to politics, actually to politics itself. So if this is a, a doctrine of sex and family and productive work and the social in that sense, the thing it's opposing, and there was this strong strand of it, Fourier was called utopian socialist, there's also kind of anarchic socialism, the thing it's opposing is the organising
1: power of the state. Now, that's absolutely right, that the early socialists, are people who think that the French Revolution failed, that you can't transform France to the extent that it needs transforming through concentrating executive and legislative power in Paris and driving through a transformation of the country that way. And in the early 19th century, we're still looking at a world where states are obvious concentrations of elite power, aristocratic power, the rise of continental bureaucratic police states, and so on. These are states that are seen as the enemy, and socialists are people who are interested not so much in replacing that kind of state with another kind of state, but in transforming social relations such that that kind of state is no longer necessary or possible. Chris Bickerton, back to the two Christs again. When you think of socialism,
0: what do you immediately think is the thing that it's against? If this is just a free association game, what would you say is the opposite?
2: I think I probably would be closer to John Macdonald in the sense that the opposition is between socialism and capitalism. And so
0: it's, it's against an economic order, which is, by definition, a conception of society too. Well, so it's
2: what's interesting about Mcdonald's account is that he produces a very moralised account of socialism. His opposition to somebody being left to die, at the entrance to the palace of Westminster, is that uh, this is ethically abhorrent. And there is a strand of thinking about socialism that it's somehow uh, based on a, a moral critique of capitalism as an evil system perpetrated by evil people who hold the resources at the expense of the many. My association with socialism is not really with that, is that it's a claim about what's a more productive system. And there is, I think, a strain of thinking about socialism that's really just about what produces the best outcome for people in terms of their material prosperity so it's really about efficiency it's about a lot of things that we associate with capitalism so it's a really a sort of a material claim so um, the, ethics, that- the ethics i think is a is a different strand of debate about socialism and capitalism that's the case today i think if we go back a bit earlier i think it was really a claim about the fact that capitalism was an inefficient way of organising society. It was anarchic, wasteful, led to people having no productive activity whatsoever, and they were therefore uh, unhappy, and that socialism was a better way of deploying people.
0: Because in that, there are, in a way, two possibilities, one of which is that capitalism itself has features that you would want to bring into a socialist society, but the key thing is to replace the bad people with good people, essentially, that it's it's malign, as you say. The other is that capitalism itself, the system itself, is the unproductive thing, and you need a radically different system. And I think you hear both even in contemporary socialism, this tension between is it actually revolutionary or is it some sense evolutionary? But there is a version of it which kind of does seem to suggest that a lot of the institutions are okay, it's the people. Um, and I think Macdonald Corbinism has a bit of that in it too,
2: I think that's right. I also think that's a big problem. Um, I mean, around the 2007-2008 crisis, the reaction against the banking industry is being staffed by bad people. I think expresses that view, that it's an ethical problem, that the ethical failings of capitalism pave the way to something else. The problem there is that you get... People of all sorts of stripes working in these industries, good and bad. That's the case in any sort of field. And when you start to pick individuals and say that they represent the sort of the bad capitalist, you're personalising something and treating it as an ethical problem when I think it's a more systemic problem.
0: Okay, so just Helen, in a sense, the same question. When you hear socialism, what do you reach for as it's instinctively as the thing you think it's supposed to?
3: I think there's a mixture of an um, opposition to capitalism and opposition to religion, and that the opposition to religion isn't always. Explicitly articulated or even understood. And you still
0: think that's true now? Do you think there is in contemporary socialism an implicit opposition to religion.
3: Yes I do. I mean it's hard because you've got to then start thinking about its relationship to communism because obviously there's a story that Chris is telling and then there's a story. And Chris's story is the pre-communist story. Yeah it's a pre-communist story and then there's a story where there's this very complicated relationship between socialism and communism and you could say well socialism has a factional civil war of which communism is at one side of it.
0: So just take us through that so if if there's a civil war between socialism and communism what distinguishes them?
3: I mean, I would say it's, it's because in practice that the the people who call themselves socialists didn't actually want to overthrow the existing capitalist order and were more fearful about using the power of the state, whereas those on the communist side of it did want to overthrow the existing capitalist order, were much less fearful about using the power of the state. And I think you can see the way in which those two impulses about religion and capitalism come together and what happened in Russia. Where if you look at what Lenin was saying when the Bolsheviks came to power, the first thing he said that needed to be done was effectively an atheism project, if you like, in Russia. The destruction of the Orthodox Church is pretty central to what Lenin thought. And in some sense, I think he gave it priority over the economic transformation, where in the Soviet Union what happens is is that by the end of Lenin's life, there is some kind of accommodation with capitalism, but there isn't an accommodation with religion.
1: I tend to see the distinction between socialism and communism as more about, Names, that's to say, up until 1914, the left is fairly comfortable calling themselves socialists or social democrats. And it's Lenin who politicizes the distinction when he insists that you're a communist if you opposed the imperialist war, and you're a socialist if you're part of, as he says, the yellow, the second international the socialist parties of, of Europe that voted to support their national governments in the war. And so after the Bolshevik Revolution, it becomes fairly straightforward. The, the parties that call themselves communist are the parties that align themselves with Moscow, and the parties that call themselves socialists are the parties that do not align themselves with Moscow. So I think you can't ignore the geopolitics. Having said that, Helen's quite right that Bolshevism does have a peculiar animus against the Russian Orthodox Church in a way that we don't really find replicated in other parts of Europe. There have been fierce struggles, for example, in France and Italy about the political role of the Catholic Church, but they don't chiefly pit socialists against Catholics. That's a more generic struggle of Republicans against Catholics. And that gives us the separation between the church and states in France and so on in the early 20th century.
0: Uh, And one of the things that distinguishes Britain and the United States from Western Europe is that those distinctions so between socialism and religion and socialism and communism are on the surface of European politics because social democracy opposes Christian democracy, that the, the centre-right are self-described Christian Democrats. You know, may be true in this country too, but the Conservative Party does not call itself a Christian Democratic Party. I mean, it's true that we've got Prime Minister who goes to church every Sunday and a potential future Prime Minister who won't. But... It's much more visible, and then there also have been electorally successful communist parties in Europe, in Italy, in France, which there haven't been in Britain and in the United States. So, is that different? Is the European story different because it's much more visible? What the contrasts are? Socialism stands sort of between Christian democracy and communism.
2: One difference is um, it's the opposition between socialism or communism and what we understand to be the workings of representative democracy and certainly something that stands out in the European context in the French case for instance is that the communist party in France had a very ambivalent and to be honest rather difficult relationship with the workings of, of representative democracy.
0: Even though it was periodically pretty successful at getting votes.
2: Well it was but it was never able to get enough votes to be able to channel its energies through majoritarian politics i mean it had a huge following but not close to a majority and so the difficulty of the french communist party was do you create alliances then in order to get yourself over the bar of a majority in which case that poses real questions about your ideological standpoint Do you then compromise and say that you're kind of anti-capitalist but not entirely because you're willing to ally yourself with a party that's obviously in favour of the capitalist system. So do you go for ideological compromise or do you pitch yourself as a revolutionary party that feels that it has the authority, even though it may not have a majority, has the authority to actually take power? And so it's a revolutionary party. And that was never really settled for the French Communist Party. It would oscillate between different things. And it eventually converged on a kind of model where it was, on the one hand, excluded from power so it could sort of portray itself as this radical party that was excluded but in the moments that it had where it could have tried to seize power it didn't and eventually that
0: made socialism a much more mainstream project by contrast right
2: it did and it also in a longer term perspective it paved the way for the electoral dominance of the socialist party in alliance with the communist party where the the losers was the communist party
0: and Mitterrand, for example was straightforwardly in his own mind A socialist.
2: Well so yeah, so he was a socialist and didn't see a contradiction, I think, between his brand of socialism and competing for elections and following the party system and the electoral process. But he couldn't have gotten where he did and he could never have become president of France had he not brought the communist vote in through a common programme that took a long time in coming together and was generally seen as a great victory for him at the expense of the communist party. So In some ways, I suppose, the opposition between parliamentary democracy and communism is more stark than the opposition between socialism and parliamentary democracy. I think the
3: thing in in, um, post-war Western Europe where the Communist Party mattered, and I think Italy is probably the clearest example of this, is, is that quite a lot turned on their relationship to the NATO alliance or what became the NATO alliance. So in Italy, there was absolutely no possibility of Italy effectively staying as an American security ally if the communists were going to be involved. Hence, the Americans pretty much, or the Truman administration, I should say, pretty much made it clear that if the communists were elected in 1948 in Italy, then Italy wasn't going to have any martial aid.
0: It should be said that was an alliance between the American administration and the Catholic Church yeah. and, to make sure that yeah. election was not lost.
3: And even then, is if you go to the early 1960s, it's quite a big deal when the, even the possibility of the socialists being allowed into a coalition in Italy. I think it's on the Kennedy when that moment happens and it's seen as quite a change from what had previously happened in the 1970s you've still got such instability in italian politics there is a case for saying the communists got to come into power but that is stopped because it's simply still not acceptable within the context of the western alliance for a communist party to be in power so i think that in some sense at least in the italian cases the socialist party makes some accommodation with nato and the communist party always stands outside that
1: I think we may very well be hearing more about the first Mitterrand administration in this country before too long, especially if the Labour Party is seen to inch ever closer to power, because the central event in the first Mitterrand administration, so Mitterrand was elected in 1981, are the U-turns of 1983. So when Mitterrand was elected, the party program was very radical. Uh, He won the presidential election, then he immediately won a majority in the Chamber of Deputies. And There was a a very radical manifesto calling for the nationalisation of large sections of the economy and so on. And the government abandoned that course. In '83. the communists ended up leaving the government. And the Mitterrand government took a very different course in a way that sort of points towards the period during which Jacques Delors was president of the European Commission, rather than towards a vision of socialism in one country. And Jack Delors, another self-described socialist. Absolutely. But that is an episode that weighs heavily on the minds of people like John McDonnell, of what happens when you begin with a very bold plan, the pressures that you can expect to come under, and then the very, very hard choices that the leaders of a socialist parliamentary majority would have to be making.
0: Because that, that's one of the things that people do associate with socialism in a contemporary context, which is the nationalisation of various things that had previously been privatised. So that is state ownership, which clearly is not part of those traditions we talked about, which are opposed to government control. I mean, how much do you think of the corbyn Macdonald project in their own minds its socialist character turns on state ownership.
2: I think you're right this is what we think of now but if we sort of have the shadows of Mitterrand the shadow of the 70s early 80s in our minds what strikes me I think is how much foreign policy mattered then I think Helen's absolutely right I mean I I suppose in preparation for this read Chris Mullins' A Very British Coup great book uh, great book um, but I didn't expect the fact that the prime minister is brought down and is attacked principally because of his decision to kick the Americans out of of the UK and to get rid of US bases. You know, his economic program is relatively sort of under discussed in the book what really matters for Chris Mullen and his sort of idea of ousting this radical left-wing prime minister is the foreign policy dimension it's the nuclear disarmament so I think back in the context of the cold war that mattered enormously
0: and that was a book written I think in 89 set in 82 That's right. so this is the Greenham Common period this yeah. is absolutely that time in politics which you know there's not an equivalent flashpoint unless it's Trident now is there i mean i think there
3: is it's relations with russia because corbyn clearly you know i mean he already showed some let's call it electoral vulnerability on this issue if you think about the fact that labor has not done as well this calendar year as it was doing last year in the opinion polls the change seems to take place around the time when corbyn's come under attack about his position on the but the oddity of that is
0: that people i don't think frame that in terms of oh that shows he's a socialist i mean the fact that corbyn seems to have sympathy with the Putin regime I and mean, no. Putin is Putin a socialist
3: but I think it's not even sympathy
0: not it's question, not it's
3: anti-Americanism that's the point of it because I don't think that there's any reason to suppose in any objective sense that Corbyn does have sympathy with the Putin regime but to the extent that he likes Putin it's because Putin is opposed to Washington
0: and that just to do that kind of intellectual history bit I mean there is that strand which I mentioned which is internationalism which is a big part of socialism and it connects to anti-imperialism too I mean that, those two things on some versions of this idea do go very strongly together. This is about the social Here is among other things, opposed to the nation-state. There is a kind of society of peoples and of nations, isn't that part of one strand of this, which actually possibly is where Corbyn has most of his intellectual roots?
1: I think that's right. In the Communist Manifesto of 1848, it ends with the famous line workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, you have a world to win. And then there's also the line a little bit earlier that makes it clear that it's up to each national movement to settle affairs with its own national bourgeoisie and that gives you this story in a way that continues down to the present where socialist parties have been organized on a national basis but have always felt themselves bound together in some kind of international struggle and that's why in the 1860s there was the International Working Men's Association and in the to mark the centenary of the French Revolution, they set up the Second International, which was the one that fell apart in the First World War. And even today, we have the Socialist International, though the modern socialist parties are not especially socialist, and so nor is the Socialist International. But there has always been that internationalist impulse, and it's one that Corbyn has taken extremely seriously. I think we've talked on this podcast before about how for somebody who was largely frozen out of any possibility of being a significant player in domestic politics for so long, Corbyn ended up taking a very great interest in international solidarity campaigns, in particular most strikingly with Palestine, but also significantly in Venezuela and so on. But that, I think, can create a tension, which is that the solidarity campaigns that are focused on regimes like Cuba and Venezuela do end up defending a model of socialism that does look old-fashioned, authoritarian, repressive. That's very different from the kind of visions that animate Corbyn and his supporters today, who certainly are very comfortable using a language of socialism, but don't actually think that means they want to turn the United Kingdom into Venezuela.
0: And that is going to be the charge that we know it's happened already that's going to be levelled against McDonald's socialism, which is what it actually is, is Venezuelan repression, bankruptcy, chaos.
2: I, I mean, I think the greater challenge is, is to be, yes, to be more precise. You know, if McDonald is asked, okay... You gave your sort of ethical account of the things that you think happen under capitalism that wouldn't happen under socialism, fine, but let's talk in much more detail about how you'd use the instruments of state to achieve your ends. What would you actually do? To what extent would you countenance, you know, the concentration of economic power in the state? What would you nationalise exactly? What's your relationship to the price system? Very concrete questions. There, I think it's much more difficult to answer. I'm not sure that they have really a very clear idea of what they would actually do. Or if they do, it would actually not look particularly socialist to our eyes. It would seem quite moderate and non-interventionist, really. So the association between socialism and central planning, I think, has been lost in the language of people around Corbyn. If they want to bring it back, maybe they will, but I don't think they I won. think it
3: kind of look like the Labour Party... In the late 60s, early 1970s, perhaps the late 70s, minus the planning aspects of it.
0: That leaves what?
3: It leaves a commitment to greater public ownership.
0: A much closer relationship with trade unions commi- and trade unions. Yeah, exactly.
3: Involve- the trade unions having a much more active role, including perhaps in wage setting, though I'm not sure how much they've really thought about that. And it means, I think, perhaps at least as much as anything else, more spending on the welfare state and the health service.
0: And does it require being outside of? single market and the customs union socialism in this country?
1: I don't think it does. I think there's a strand of opinion that wants to talk about how with the Viking and the Laval decisions by the European Court or with the rules on state aid that the Corbyn project can only be pursued outside the single market. People who've looked, very closely at exactly what the rules are and what other countries are able to do are often quite skeptical about that with um, railway systems that are in public ownership in continental European countries and so on uh, but this is certainly something that people are arguing about I think a case can be made on both sides I think Chris is about to make the case on the other side the the your case
2: on. on this principle of sort of the grandfathering principle so yes if at the time of joining you had a nationalized railway system you will not be forced by virtue of the treaties to to privatize to However, that's not the same thing as saying that there is no general tendency to move in the direction of privatising and reducing the role of the state in the economy on the old sort of socialist model. That is definitely present. And the rate at which the change takes place is very varied. And it's quite hard in some cases. And in France, they've been trying for a number of years to really push their railway system into the private sector. It's difficult, but moving in that direction, you have the weight of the European treaties behind you.
0: And moving in the other direction, direction, they are a barrier. Well, so
2: moving in the other direction, the barrier is incredibly high. I just don't think that a community based on the principles of free movement of of labour, of services, of capital and of goods is compatible with a socialist vision premised on using the instrument of the state to actively discriminate between economic players and to really transform radically the workings of the market. So I think if you assume that socialism is in some way fundamentally disruptive of the play of market forces and represents the imposition of political rule on the anarchy of the market, then it is philosophically and practically incompatible with the workings of the single market.
3: I think it's actually not taking aside in the question about what the treaties allow and don't allow. It's a practical electoral consideration that I think MacDonald does understand, and that is, is there isn't a really a realistic possibility of Labour forming a parliamentary majority if it remains committed to freedom of movement that comes with being in the single market. Labour was able to get back those votes, particularly amongst working-class voters, that it lost over the immigration issue by the fact that it played it both ways in the last election about the EU and that it, didn't, it did not position itself as an anti-Brexit party. In fact, it explicitly said in his manifesto that Labour would leave the single market and the customs union. And I don't see any path back to power for Labour such that Macdonald could do any of the things that he wants to do if were in the single market and were to remain in the single market and was accepting, you know, in perpetuity, freedom of movement. Now, there may be a case for European economic area in those terms because of the fact that it includes emergency break provisions. And I think if you listen to things that someone like Paul Mason says, you can kind of see an argument for that in what he says about how Labour could reconcile the different bits of the position it's got itself into But simply accepting freedom of movement, I think, is not possible for a Labour Party that wants to win power again.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Can we just talk briefly about America? Because I started by mentioning that and we haven't gone onto it yet. Socialism means something different in that country. It's always been said, both by Americans and by people outside, that it's traditionally been a slur in American politics. And I was looking at some things Bernie Sanders has said about whether he is or isn't a socialist, and he kind of skips quite delicately around that question, but occasionally jumps in and says, I am. But when he's pushing back against the way the word is used, he says most Americans think that the word socialism means the gulag. So A, it means Soviet communism, but but it means the most extreme forms of oppression. They don't think about anything else. And he says that's nothing to do with socialism. In my mind, socialism for me is about a genuinely democratic society. So he's a social democrat and wants to say the word that goes with socialism, in his mind, is democracy. And then there are these Bernie candidates now springing up, and Bernie himself might run again, who are much more openly embracing this message and saying we are... We are socialists because we are Democrats. And as I said at the beginning, some of them have started winning in primaries. And if you win in primaries in the States now, you often win-win because there's no competition. But
3: they are only in the Pennsylvania state legislature. Yeah, they are.
0: Um, but you know, it may be that one such person is going to be running for President Bernie. And, and this may be the beginning of a... a white, I mean, it's not going to work in lots of places in America, but there are presumably places in America beyond the Pennsylvania state legislature where it could work too. I mean, none of us are there and none of us is American, but is it being detoxified?
1: I think it is. I mean, I think one of the things that is annoying right-wingers at the moment is that younger voters aren't moved by the associations of the word socialism with the experience of the Soviet bloc, and that's why you get people on... Tim Montgomery's new website saying that, you know, they, they should set up a museum to the victims of communism in England. and Or in rural Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, or not rural, I mean, in urban Pennsylvania. Um, the people on the right are really kind of annoyed that the attacks on socialism that associate it with the Eastern Bloc just don't really work anymore. And we saw a bit of that at the general election last year, where people thought that Jeremy Corbyn might be made unpopular owing to repeated association with Irish Republicans, and that didn't seem to work in the election campaign. And these attack lines that were very successful in the post-war period going right through to the 1980s just don't seem to work anymore. And if you think about the age profile of the electorate, that's not so surprising, especially when you think about the age profile of the electorate that is voting for this new style of left-wing politics. And obviously, in the future, those associations will become less and less. So I can see why people like Corbyn and McDonnell and Sanders are increasingly confident about using the S word, in a way that in the 1990s, uh, Labour politicians were extremely defensive. There was a ridiculous pamphlet that Tony Blair published where he talked about socialism with a hyphen and tried to pretend that socialism was this coherent ideology that kind of sounded like socialism but wasn't. You don't get Labour politicians doing that anymore.
0: And in that sense, one of the things that this new form of socialism is being opposed to is precisely the Clinton-Blair years. I mean, that is very much the enemy now. The people who were so scared of the word that they ran away from all of the things that their movement was meant to represent.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's an old line in this country, which is that socialism is what a Labour government does. And I think one of the sentiments that's emerging these days is this idea that socialism is what a Labour government, except the Blair government, does. Whatever a corbyn mcdonald government does will be presented as socialism, whether it's mildly reformist or radical. They've got a great deal of scope to decide how radical, how bold they want to be. But whatever they do, it's going to be called socialism, and it's going to be contrasted with the new Labour period as much as with whatever George Osborne or Philip Hammond have been doing. And there have only really been four Labour governments
0: in this country. is the MacDonald era, the Attlee era, the Wilson era, and the Blair era. So Blair wasn't socialism. Most people think that Attlee was. MacDonald, Ramsay MacDonald, didn't manage to get a chance. And then Helen was implying that the Wilson late 60s version, that's probably the socialism that we're going to get. Do you think of the Wilson government as a socialist government?
1: Yes, I think I do. I normally think claims about a post-war consensus are overstated. Obviously, the Wilson government is operating within parameters for managing the British economy that have been inherited from predecessor regimes. But I think there is a reforming ambition for ministers. I think there's certainly a modernizing ambition. That's the significance of Wilson's rhetoric of the white heat of the technological revolution that goes back to what other critics mentioned earlier, the idea that socialism is often about a more productive form of industry and a more efficient form of production. And I think you see in projects like The Open University something of that vision to change the conditions in which ordinary people live their lives obviously the wilson government ran into enormous problems not least to do with devaluation in 1967 and afterwards but i don't have too much of a problem with calling it a socialist government otherwise you're you're setting the bar too high and socialism becomes a kind of uh, utopia a, a kind of utopia
2: mm-hmm. i think it can function quite well as a sort of regulating standard as a utopia but i think uh, chris is right that What differentiates the Wilson period from today, I think, is the legitimate existence of some terrain that is not regulated by the market, that there is a a legitimate and quite expansive role for the state in all sorts of fields of life, and that the boundary between what is the public and what is the private is one that exists. And what we've seen, I think, over the decades has been a kind of colonisation of this a set of ideas associated with the way the market works into all domains of our life. And the idea that you can carve out something that is different from that is a very difficult case to make now. And the socialism, I think, whatever form it takes, however it exists, it must be premised on some idea that the regulating mechanism for the organisation of society is not simply that of of prices uh, or the logic associated with prices.
3: I think that the problem with trying to turn the Wilson story into that positive a story for socialism is the way that it ends. And I don't mean the first Wilson government, but the second one. And the end of Wilson's own premiership in 1976, when he resigns at the beginnings of what is going to be a very traumatic sterling crisis that ends up with his successor, James Callaghan, having to go to the IMF to get a loan to stabilise the situation because of the state of the British balance of, of payments. And what you then get effectively is the Callaghan-Healy government, Healy being the the chancellor at the time, implementing a version of Mrs. Thatcher's economic policy before we get to that point in 1979. So if you want to say, I'm like Chris, I think I'm sceptical about the idea of a post-war consensus, but if there was one, then it ends in 1976 with that moment. It doesn't end in 1979. And that
0: shadow is obviously going to be Hanging over the Corbyn government, certainly in the early days, there will be constant reiteration in, in a very British coup. You know, the, the way you undermine an elected socialist government in Britain is the press are doing part of it, the spooks are doing part of it, and then you leave the rest of the markets. <laughs> and in fact, what you do is you spook the markets.
3: The really interesting question now, though, is, is whether the world that we, which we live in post-2008, the world of QE, actually changes that, and whether it's not such a constraint. Now, I've got my doubts about that, not least because QE creates so many deleterious consequences. But in the short to medium term, the financial market constraints are nothing like that they were in the 1970s when Wilson was up against them or in early 1980s when Metron was up against them or indeed when Major was up against them in the ERM crisis. Particularly, you know, given the amount of debt that most European states have, they can borrow money extraordinarily cheaply. Now, that I think that is problematic in the long term but it's not the position that any of these other governments that we've been talking about find themselves in. What's interesting about the role of the markets in a very
2: British coup the Prime Minister has a great solution to that which is that everyone expects the civil servants expect that the market disciplining mechanism is going to be decisive and very quick uh, and there's a run on the pound And what they do is they go and look for a loan outside of the IMF. And they get this loan from, I think it's Algeria and two other countries, and sort of magically sort of produce this money and say, ha-ha, we don't need to have an IMF bailout. Now, in the context of today, I mean, there's no way around it. The Eurozone, no, you simply cannot get around Eurozone membership. In the British case... Yes, I mean, I think Helen's right. Capital controls, you know, would be required if you wanted to stabilise your currency if you're faced with a real run on it. Um, there are things you'd have to do. But this who's, we, who's
0: Corbyn going to take his loan from? I don't know. Iran? I don't
2: yeah. know. But, uh, it's
0: not going to be America. It's not going to be Saudi Arabia. No, that's right. Well, the it's Greece, not going to be Venezuela you know, the any anymore. The Greeks
3: tried to do that by taking a Chinese loan. In, well, in that. And
0: that, that, is, you know, that is always the option and in it this was, world. In
3: it, but it was vetoed. I mean, and that is the point where it does tie back to foreign policy questions again it's not like you can be indifferent unless you want outright confrontation as to where you're going to borrow this money from and as i say i still think that you know it's to be put to the test whether a centre-left government let alone a left-wing government could use qe to finance a very large increase in expenditure
0: in a world where i know it's not exactly right but where we're used to just printing money just print more of it yeah i want to end with utopianism because we're not the pessimistic podcast we're the utopian podcast and there is another strand of socialism, which is a much more recent phenomenon, and it does connect to the other thing that the word social is now often associated with social media, social networks, the famous film about Facebook, the social network, and that there is a new kind of social out there that has the potential, I think, to go back to some of these 19th century roots, which is to, well, it's, certainly it certainly has religious substitute religious overtones but also to go around the state bypass the state find ways that people can connect and can share this is the sharing economy that don't require state control nationalization and so on and i think there are both anarchic and utopian strands in contemporary politics and thinking about politics which put a huge amount of weight on the emancipatory possibility of this technology it's socializing possibility so paul mason that Helen mentioned he's someone who in his book post-capitalism really does kind of say we can go back to the 19th century in the 21st and almost miss out the 20th century because we've got this new tool which is not just about efficiency and productivity it's about emancipation do you buy any of that do you think there's the possibility of a new old socialism
2: I think I'm too much of a historical materialist to buy that. I mean, renewing the sort of the with the utopian tradition, I think is absolutely right. However, if you look at how this sharing economy actually functions, if you look at the social relations of the sharing economy, then they're pretty grubby and nasty. And they're premised on a particular model of work uh, and a particular model of the division of the spoils that I think is nothing you know, particularly new or innovative. It's just pretty oppressive, I think.
0: And if you were to socialise that model, you would require the power of the state to do it?
2: Well, or if you were to transform it. I mean, the most profitable kind of companies today are precisely those companies that use that model where they can have a minimum amount of expenditure on workers without providing them with a certain set of sort of holiday rides, kind of pensions, none of those things. You can just employ people without any of those obligations as an employer. Now that's a great model and the profits are then channeled into a small number of shareholders in these kind of new companies. That just doesn't seem to me a very new or different model. It just seems to be one that's escaping the constraints of an earlier social democratic age.
3: I think Mason's argument, though, is about not so much about what you can use these social networks for, in the first instance anyway, in terms of economic transformation, but what you can do in terms of political transformation. Because one thing we, strangely in a way, haven't talked about during how long we've been talking about socialism is we haven't really talked about the working class relationship to socialism because obviously there's a way of conceiving it, the socialist project, which was about to give the working class a greater share of material... Reward in some sense. And I think if you read the underlying argument, it seems to me anyway to run through Mason's view of things, it is that actually the working class is no longer the agent of socialism, that the agent of socialism is urban, educated people hooked up with their telephones who are able to bring about social change, social and political change. Now, what that means in terms of transforming the companies whose products they're using I think that's rather left unanswered but I think it is interesting because this is somebody who is is steeped in some sense in the working class tradition of socialism who's effectively saying no that's not what socialism's about any longer we're leaving the working class behind either they've got to find some way to join in it's young educated urban people who are going to change the world and they're going to do it by their hooked upness with each other via their phones.
0: Helen touched on Italy then Chris Bickerton was biting his tongue. We all want to talk about Italy. People who listen to this podcast regularly will know that we often say Italy is where the action is really going to kick off, and it is now. And next week, we are going to catch up with what's happening there. A week is a long time in politics. A day is a long time in Italian politics at the moment. Next week, Italy. We'll tweet the link to the programme we did with Chris Clark when we talked, among other things, about Italy and Germany. The week after that, it's going to be Andrew O'Hagan on Grenfell. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. In a way, that's the thing that is weirdly coming round again. Um, We can, maybe this thing allows us a way not out of capitalism, but out of politics.
3: Except not. Because we <laughs> were all talking politics. <laughs> you could just do the sign off, that was really
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> My book signing was uh, an enormous success, partly because I was okay, it's not just Margaret Atwood, but Margaret Atwood and lots of people in Hands May Pale, you know, those red, and you can't compete with that, no. just saying. You did really, you, you you like really can't. I did not have people That's
1: dressed so. up as kind of <laughs> whatever. <laughs> And I saw on the Twitter that during the Q&A at her session, somebody mansplained The Handmaid's Tale too much. <laughs> Hold up.
4: What was that?